Amen. Thank you, Scott. Take your Bibles, and if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Gospel of John, chapter 2, and our Bibles this morning. I tell you, I've enjoyed the service this morning, the singing, uh, the special music, the choir. It's been wonderful. It's been spoken to my heart in such a powerful way. Many of you have as well, just by your presence and being here. And uh, many of you going through some uh, very serious challenges in your lives, and yet you're choosing to uh, look to the Word of God and to the Lord to comfort your heart and encourage you. And I can't tell you, just as your pastor, but also as a brother, your brother in Christ, how much that encourages me. And what a testimony and example you are to me, and I love you for it, and I appreciate you so much. We're in John chapter 2. You know, only God can make something out of nothing. Only God can make something out of nothing, and only God can bring true joy. And we see that in the miracle, the sign, uh, that we're going to be looking at and studying in our text this morning. Uh, Do you believe that Jesus, do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that? Most of you this morning do. You'd say yes to that. You believe that Jesus, uh, as spoken of in the Bible, is God, that he is the Word, as we've studied in chapter 1. Of course, John recorded that for us, and uh, he wants to know, he wanted us to understand that Jesus was the Word. He was the divine revelation of God, of God, of who he is in human flesh. And John talked about that at the beginning of John chapter 1, and how Jesus, the Word, was eternal, and he is eternal, uh, and that he was and is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Um that he came to earth, took upon human flesh upon himself, he lived a sinless life, and he was rejected by many, many people. And that is one of the options when it comes to Jesus. God is not going to force you to receive him as your personal Savior. You understand that, don't you? You can know about him. Um, You can read about him and understand much about him, but God is not going to force you to receive him. Because God is pleased when you and I respond to him in faith. That's taking him at his word. And so many, and John records it, many rejected him. He came unto his own, his own received him not, the Bible says. We're going to see that a little bit today. But also we saw, and John talked about this, that many did believe upon him. Many did receive him. And so we've read and studied about the testimony of John, the Apostle John. But also we remember we studied about the testimony, the faithful testimony of John the Baptist. Do you remember that? John the Baptist was very faithful. He was a faithful witness. He had experienced the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew who he was, and he was a faithful witness. He was a testimony. He gave honest testimony about who Jesus was. And we saw the results of John the Baptist's testimony just last week. You remember five of the apostles, we, we read about how they were introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, John and uh, Andrew, uh, John the Baptist pointed them to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And they believed John's testimony and they began to follow Jesus. And uh, then we read about Philip, and uh, of course before that, Andrew bringing his brother Peter 
to Jesus. And then Jesus going to Philip, and then Philip going to his friend Nathaniel from Cana. And we're going to be in Cana here in our text this morning in John chapter 2. Look with me back to verse 36 and 37 of chapter 1 before we get to our text this morning. 36 and 37. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, John the Baptist saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And I told you last week that is what you and I have been called to do. Right there. Did you see it there in verse 37? And the two disciples heard him, heard John the Baptist speak, and they followed Jesus. Our responsibility, we've not been called to gather people unto ourselves. We've not been, gather, we've not been called or commissioned by God to uh, get people to follow us or to applaud us or to think highly of us. That's not what God has called us to do. Every one of us in this room who are children of God ought to embrace what John the Baptist did. And we ought to make it our heart's desire that we, that we would speak the truth, as John the Baptist did, and when others hear us speak, that they wouldn't follow us, but they would follow Jesus. Uh, that ought to be our goal. And that ought to be our goal as parents for our children and for our fellow believers and, and for our neighbors and those that we love and that we care about. Uh, look at our text here in, in John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. That would be Mary. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage, so they were invited too. Don't you love weddings? No? Well, they were a big deal in Bible times. In fact, they would celebrate for at least three days, normally seven days. You have to take vacation days, right? We're, honey, we're going to the wedding. Uh, we're going to travel nine miles, ten miles. We're going to stay there. We're going to celebrate for seven days. It was a big deal. And Mary was there. Jesus and his disciples were there. They were all from the area at this time. Verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. This was a big faux pas, okay? Big problem. Social blunder extraordinaire. Verse 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, I've never called my mother that. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? In case we are thinking maybe, you know, we know Jesus never misspoke, okay? I misspeak sometimes. He never misspoke. So in case we were looking at it thinking, woman, okay, maybe he didn't mean that. Then he says, what have I to do with thee? Or, or what you're talking to me about, what does this have to do with me? And then he goes on to say in verse number four, mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And we all could learn from that today. Whatever the Lord Jesus Christ tells us to do, you and I ought to do it. That ought to be our thinking. Verse 6. And there were set, th set there six water pots of stone. Probably limestone. That was normal for the day. After the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three first, first, skin, first skins apiece, which would have been about uh, ten, anywhere from 10 to 25 gallons they would hold. And, uh, first skin was a, a 
a measurement. Verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, or the host of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and he was the guy responsible to make sure there was enough of everything. And he hadn't done well at it. Verse 10. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now, the best of your wine until now. Verse 11 gives us the conclusion and the purpose for this sign. Verse 11 says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And that's the purpose of these signs. This is the purpose. God has sent his son to earth. He's sent him for one reason, and that is to take upon himself the sin of the whole world and to be our propitiation. Big word, it means substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus came for one reason, that was to do the will of his Father, to die for the sins of all of mankind, so that you and I could be saved, delivered from our sins. And during in this, this, uh, this particular miracle, or this particular sign, was the first of the miracles recorded for us that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we study your word this morning. Father, we've not come to be entertained. Um, Father, there are many needs in the room this morning, more than I know. Father, we truly need, we need you, and you have provided yourself for us by your Son and by your Spirit, by your written word. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to know you better Help us with our perspectives on life and our circumstances as we consider our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for some in the room this morning who perhaps have not believed upon him. And Father, they truly are in peril, in danger of hellfire, eternal judgment. And Father, I pray that you would use your word today by your spirit to help them to see Jesus as their personal Savior, and I pray that they'd receive him. I ask these things in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Now, I want to give just a quick overview of the Gospel of John for just a moment. I want you to take your Bibles. You, you have your place in John chapter 2. I want you to turn, hold your place in John 2, but turn to John chapter 12 for just a moment. And I want you to hold the pages in your fingers. And in this particular There's not many pages there, I haven't counted them, but from John chapter 2 to John chapter 12, this this records for us Jesus' public ministry, okay? So as we study these pages, we're going to be looking at Jesus' public ministry, and this is important and practical, applicable for our message today, because in, in Cana, this was the first of his public ministry. So this is, his public ministry is going to go all the way through chapter 12 of, of the Gospel of John. And then you're in John 12, and so you can see chapter 13. Look over to chapter 17 and hold your place at chapter 13. And from John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter uh, 17, we're going to be seeing Jesus' private ministry. And we're going to be looking at that. We'll be studying that as well. 
and particularly how he was ministering and uh, teaching his disciples. In fact, John chapter 17 is an amazing prayer that Jesus prayed after he left the upper room and was making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be betrayed. And he prays to his father, not just for the apostles, but for all of his disciples, for you and for me. And you want to read about what Jesus prayed, how he prayed for you and for me, read John chapter 17. So we'll be studying his private ministry. And then from John chapter 18 all the way through the end of the book, John chapter 21, it's the record for us of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. So that gives you a little bit of an overview of where we're going in our study. But you can look back to John chapter 2 as uh, we'll, we'll look at the first of eight miracles, really nine miracles that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John. In chapter 2, of course, he's going to turn the water into wine. We'll study that today. In chapter 4, he's going to heal a man who's dying. And we'll not get to that today or these other miracles. In chapter 5, he cures a man who's paralyzed. In in chapter number 6, he creates food for thousands of people. In in chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, Jesus walks on water. Now, right now, you can walk on water, but I wouldn't recommend it as things are thawing. We can walk on ice, but Jesus walked on water, and we're going to see, and all of these are giving testimony that he is not just merely a man, but he is God in human flesh. In chapter 9, he's going to, we're going to read about how he gives sight to the blind, and in chapter 11, how he raises a man from the dead, a man who's been dead for days. Jesus calls him out of the grave. He takes a dead man and he gives him life. In chapter 21, he feeds his disciples out of nothing. And then there's the culminating miracle where Jesus is raised from the dead. And so all of these miracles that we're going to be studying, and starting with turning water into wine, all of these miracles are signs that John records in his account of the gospel And uh, he wants us to all come to an understanding and a conviction that Jesus is God. He's not just a man. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a master, a good teacher, that Jesus is the Lord, that he is God Almighty. In John 20 and verse 30, John would later record, he said this, quote, and many other signs truly, did you hear that? And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. So we're only going to look, he only records nine of them. But I don't want you to think that these are the only miracles that Jesus did. There are and were many, many other miracles that Jesus did. In fact, the miracles of Jesus during his time on earth were, they happened daily in front of his disciples, daily. And they're more than could be recorded. In fact, in John 21 and verse 25, John says this, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. (laughs) So this is just a very, very small sampling as we're going to be looking at them, of the miracles and the signs that Jesus did. So... John's just giving us a sample. Look at, look at verse number 14 of chapter 1 as to the reason John is 
recording these things for us. In verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, he told us this in the prologue, or the beginning of this account of the gospel. Now we're in chapter 2, and he's going to actually tell us the very first thing, the very first sign that Jesus did. But in verse 14, he says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. John says, and he's an old man when he's penning down these words, and he remembers back to his time there in Galilee, in modern-day Israel. And John's writing this from Ephesus. He remembers back as an old man. He's remembering back to when he was a young man, a young, just, just the first few days with Jesus. And he's thinking back, and his mind must have been overwhelmed, and he says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that brings us to our text this morning in John chapter 2. But this is John's point. He wants us to see the glory of God through Jesus. I want to notice, first of all, in in chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, I want to notice the marriage celebration. There's a marriage celebration here in Cana. Look at verse 1. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana. Now, Cana would only been about between 5 to 10 miles. Most folks think about 9 miles from Nazareth, where Jesus was from, okay, and where Mary would have been from. So there's this marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. That would be Mary. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. They get this invitation. I, again, tell you that a marriage was so much more important then. In those days, it was so much, it was so much, it was a much greater celebration. And and I enjoy weddings today, but uh, the celebration was much, it it was, it just took up a lot more time. Uh, Scott Pagan has slipped out, but can you imagine for Kaylee's wedding, had you had to feed everybody for seven days? You know, it would have been, that'd be exciting, you know. But here's the thing, Mrs. Pagan. Nate Hollis would have had to pay for it all. See, so it worked out. And he had to work, uh, he had to plan for a year and prove himself. You know, we should try this sometime. Maybe we'll try it with my daughters. How about that? We'll try it with my daughters. Um, But there's this marriage celebration. And again, just a few days earlier, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, they had just been introduced to Jesus, so they've not been with Jesus all that long. When we read in verse number 2 that Jesus was called, he was invited, and his disciples were invited to the marriage. If we're not thinking uh, how things are working along in the timeline, then we just kind of assume that they've known Jesus for a really long time. They're very confident in him. Uh, They know a lot about him. They've heard a lot of teaching by him. And that's just not true. They didn't know a lot about him. They hadn't been with him that that long at all. They were very young in the faith. And and here they are with Jesus. And because they're from this region of Galilee, Galilee, they too are invited to this feast. And 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 it's only been a few days. But they're already concluding that Jesus is the Messiah. You you saw that back over in verse 41 in chapter 1, where they're saying he is the Messiah. And then in verse 45 of chapter 1, there, uh, I think Philip was talking to Nathaniel there, and he, remember he told Nathaniel, he's the one who's been prophesied and spoken of by Moses and the Old Testament prophets. 
And then, in, and then uh, again in verse 49, Nathanael confesses to Jesus in just one meeting, he says, you're the son of God. The same person who had said to Philip, his friend, does anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, come on. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And we talked about that last week, what he meant by that. But now in verse 49 of chapter 1, he's saying, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so these men were believing that Jesus was the Messiah. At the end of chapter 1, in verse number 50, Jesus had told Nathanael, Thou shalt see greater things than this, than me understanding and knowing your thoughts. Now here we are in chapter 2, and, and, and Nathanael's going to see greater things than what he's already seen. Cana, Cana was an agricultural town. It's very hilly in that region. And uh, again, it's just north of Nazareth about nine miles away, just ruins there today, a lot of stone, kind of overgrown. It was an agricultural town. It was a very small place compared to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was no boom town. Nazareth would have been about 350 people, uh, maybe 500, maybe. That's stretching it. That's where Jesus grew up. That's where he was from. He lived his life, his life there, 30 years. He's 30 years old when this This is happening. His ministry is just beginning. So 30 years he's lived his life on this earth, very obscure. Um, Jesus' uh, stepfather, Joseph, was a what? He was a carpenter. When we think of a carpenter in our society, we think of a man who works with wood. But in Israel in those days, there wasn't a lot of wood to work with. And so... If you go to Israel and talk to the people there, they'll say he wasn't. He didn't work with wood. He was a mason. He was a stone mason. That's what he did. And I tend to agree with that. And if that's true, Jesus would have worked with his father as a stone mason. Have you ever shaken the hand of a stone mason before? Their fingers are just stubs. They're thick, muscular, worn, calloused, tough hands. When you think of Jesus, you shouldn't think of someone who didn't know how to work. Because if he worked with his father at all, he would have been very, very strong, and he would have had very, very worn hands. Very, very strong hands. So Jesus is from this area, and at the time, again, the population of Nazareth is not more than 500 people, maybe probably about 350 people, and Cana would have been a town of 36 people, 50 people. This is not a large town. This is not even Flushing. Boy, Flushing would be a boom town compared to these places. This is small, agricultural. You have your goats. You have your sheep. You live with your family. Life is very hard. You work day to day. Vacations are not a part of your vocabulary. Days off is not something that you have. Every day you get up and you do the chores, you do the job just to live, just to survive. And a wedding, and I say all this to say that a wedding would have been a huge event, because this was the only time people, other than the feasts, this was the only time where they would come together. It was a holy occasion. And people would come together, friends and family would get together and They would socialize and fellowship with one another. And the people from Nazareth would have known the people from Cana because they lived just not too far to the south. 
They would have farmed together. They might have sold goods to one another and made repairs for one another. I don't know. The people from Cana would have come to Nazareth when they needed things. And they could only be, be bought or purchased in Nazareth. And so this is why Mary is here. This is why Jesus and Andrew and Peter and Philip. Andrew and Peter and Philip were also from Galilee. They were from Bethsaida, which was to the north of the Sea of Galilee, on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. But they're all invited because... They know people in the families that are being united in marriage. Maybe they were even related. They would have been perhaps close neighbors or maybe even good friends. But a a wedding was a party in those days that exceeded all other parties because it's the most important event in the ancient world in the life of people in a town and a village. We should note that Jesus, the first of Jesus' miracles, the first sign that he shows, he shows to his family and close friends. I notice that, and I also can't help but notice uh, that he performs it at, at a wedding. At a wedding. And I don't think it was by accident. Marriage. Marriage is a sacred thing. The union between a man and a woman is a sacred thing. Marriage is a condition of life. It's the way you live your life. It was designed by God. It wasn't designed by mankind. Uh, A boy and a girl didn't see each other and think, wow, wow, let's get married. Let's create marriage. No, no. Marriage was created by God. It was designed by God, ordained by God, and it was authenticated by God and is regularly still to this day in an open public covenant. Marriage is the highest, noblest, and best of all human relationships. No other human relationship is as wonderful as marriage. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 7, as Peter is giving instruction to husbands and how they're to dwell with their wives according to knowledge so that their prayer life won't be hindered, He refers to marriage as the grace of life. The grace of life. In other words, even for a husband and wife who are unsaved, they still receive and benefit from the unmerited favor of God, even if they're unsaved, by having a wife, a man having a wife, or a a wife having a husband. You think about that. Last night, as Cindy and I were about to go to sleep, I thanked her a little bit for the impact she's had in my life. The influence she's had in my life. There's no doubt in my mind I would not be here this morning if it weren't for my wife. She's been such a helpmate to me. And as I was reading this passage and thinking about marriage and this grace of life, as Peter calls it under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, I had could only nod my head in agreement that marriage has been the grace of God in my life. And whether your marriage is moving smoothly along, if you have a husband, if you have a wife, you ought to work at it. You ought to be for it. You ought to stay after it. You ought to look to the word of God for direction because it's God's plan. And any society that openly honors This lifelong, God-ordained commitment of marriage, a covenant made by a man and a woman before God and man, and they rear their children within that union. Any, Any society that honors a lifelong commitment of marriage 
will experience peace. And I'm talking about a country, a nation. If they'll honor the, the, the sanctity of marriage, they'll experience peace and prosperity. They'll enjoy safety and security. And the opposite is also true. When society throws away what God has ordained, they can expect the opposite. They can expect turmoil and resentment and hatred and a, a, a corrupt and eroding society. And, and, and I can't help but noticing just in this text in verses 1 and 2 that our Lord, Jesus Christ, honored marriage by attending a wedding and doing his very first miracle there. And he draws attention to this marriage. We don't know the people who are being married. And again, this is three to seven days. You know, we, we do a wedding now in, in an hour or less. If I do a wedding, it's probably 45 minutes. If Pastor Scott does a wedding, it's about an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> Mrs. Scott, it's so good to have you home from your vacation. <laughs> it's good to have Pastor Scott home too. So this wedding here is the culmination of a year-long betrothal period between between the bridegroom and the bride. And what was going on? What was going on for that period of, of betrothal? Which, by the way, the betrothal period in the Jewish weddings was a legal binding con- contractual, contractual agreement. And it could only be nullified by a, a legal divorce. That was the only way to break up that but, but, it, but the marriage hadn't been, wouldn't be consummated until the end of the wedding, until the end of the celebration. So day one of the wedding, you know, day two of the wedding, day, day three of the wedding, day four, day five, day six. You've you got to wait a little while, you know, a year preparing. Um, and now, and, and for a year, he's, this bridegroom has been planning. He's been preparing a place for his bride. They would often build a house for the bride sometimes adding that stone addition onto their father's house. The bridegroom had full responsibility for the cost of the wedding. And when everything was ready, everybody was invited. And the celebration was going to take place. The house had been built. The house had to be furnished by the bridegroom. And all the preparations were made, and he had to demonstrate that he had what it took to provide for this girl that he wanted to marry. And the wedding party began, but there was a problem. And I don't know if this guy was a poor planner or what, but they ran out of something that God calls in his word his blessing upon his people, which was wine. Look at verse number three. And when they wanted wine, oinos in the Greek, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. There isn't any more left. Now, I want to say this, and we'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more, but oinos, as well as yain in the Hebrew, um, wine, we use the word wine, and it's an appropriate translation. When we think of wine, what do we think of? We think of what? Alcohol. Um, but you know, in the Bible, the word wine is found and used generically. So too is the Hebrew word yain or oinos in the Greek. They're both generic words. In other words, they could use the word oinos, like we use our English word wine, and it could refer to alcoholic wine. Or oinos, or yain, wine, could refer to non-alcoholic wine. 
how do you know which is which? In fact, in, in, in the Old Testament, I think uh, Yain is found like 141 or 142 times. Uh, I don't remember which is which, but 70 times it's referring to non-alcoholic. 71 times it's referring to alcoholic. I may have those switched, and I apologize if I do. But you can tell which is which by the context. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get into this this morning. Some of you are like, oh, good, he's going to address it. I'm not going to address it too much this morning. I'm going to say a few things about it. But really, this is going to require a little further study because I just don't, it doesn't matter my opinions. It matters how we, what we see from the Word of God. So probably on a Sunday night, I'm going to do like a three-part series on what the Bible says about alcohol, okay? And we'll be very thorough, okay? So you plan on being here for that, all right? Very, very important. You ought to be here for that. Um, but, but we have this, this oinos, this wine, and uh, they've run out. And by the way, if you just leave grape juice unrefrigerated, what do you get? Fermentation process is a science. If you just leave grape juice out, what do you get? You get nasty grape juice. That's what you get. You don't get something that people are like, "Woo, can I have some of that? That's not what you get. We, again, we tend, to think that we tend to think very generally, well, they couldn't refrigerate it. It had to be alcoholic. See, I've got to stay on track here, okay? Um, that's not, that's not necessarily true. They had plenty of ways, several ways, four ways, in fact. People 300 years before Jesus was born were writing about how the people of this region of the world could preserve wine without it becoming alcoholic. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. It's not Budweiser. It just didn't turn into something that people wanted just by not doing anything with it. So, but we have number two in verse number three, we have a catastrophic predicament. Okay, in, in verses one and two, we have this marriage celebration. In verse three, we have this catastrophic predicament. The marriage celebration is in full swing. Everybody's having a wonderful time. Uh, and then comes this catastrophic predicament. The wine ran out. That's a problem. This is a colossal social embarrass- embarrassment. I mean, after all, The guy's worked a year to prove that he can provide for his bride. He's worked, he's labored, he's saved, he's furnished, he's built, and he's provided, and now there isn't enough. So in in this particular day, in Jesus' day, for the host to run out out of wine, it would have been a joke. He would have been the joke of the region... Not just of Cana. I mean, that'd be bad enough, 36 people. But the joke of the region of Galilee for years. Do you remember, do you remember when he tried to prove himself? He, the wedding came and he didn't have enough. It would be a joke. He would be the joke of the area. And so it really is a colossal social embarrassment. He's trying to demonstrate his ability to take care of this woman, and now he can't. And that, after all, his father, her father's handing her over to him, and, and this is a problem. So this is what, and I have two daughters, this is what a father, I think, probably worries about when he marries off his daughter. Can the man provide, will he provide for my daughter? Already as a father, my girls are young, I already think about this sometimes. You know, I mean, I'm talking to my sons, I'm trying to train them up 
in such a way so they will provide and they will care for and they will be the husbands they ought to be to their wives, but I'm supposed to hand my daughters over to two guys? Two, two guys? You know, I don't know. Maybe they'll have to work for me for several years or something like that. This guy, was this guy going to be able to make a living, right? That's what a dad wonders. Is this guy going to be able to take care of my daughter? And so now here the, the wine's running out at the greatest celebration that they would ever have. And remember, life was tough. Life was hard. Labor was extreme in these days. They couldn't just run down to the supermarket and get more. This was it. And it was a difficult world to just survive in. And a celebration like this meant so much as a relief to not just the, those being married, but to the entire region. And again, uh, wine, grape juice, was a picture of God's provision and blessing upon his people. And so for it to run out, it, it really spoke very poorly, uh, set a very poor precedent or, or, or overall feel to the wedding. What, what about the wine? Well, it was a staple drink in the ancient world. Wine was made primarily out of grape juice, and Israel was well known for its vineyards. You can, there aren't as many there today as there used to be, but even today you can go through and you can look at Israel, and you can look at the topography, and they would, they, they would have to build on the hills what we would call terraces. And within those terraces, they would have a vineyard planted on those terraces, and it was a land, as had been spoken of by God, to the people of Israel, and then by the spies, the good spies, to the nation of Israel. Back in Moses' day, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land rich with water and rich with grapes. But wine could be made out of grapes. It could also uh, be made out of other fruits as well. Sometimes it was called strong drink. And there again, that word, when we read strong drink in the Bible, we think, whoa, that must be alcoholic. And sometimes it was. But there were other times it was not. You know, it's, it's kind of humorous, but uh, it's been a while now. I think it was back in, in September. William and I, my day off is on Tuesday, and William and I will spend the day together. He doesn't go to school on Tuesdays, and so we were having lunch together, and he wanted some of what I was drinking, which was juice of some kind. I think it was uh, pineapple, orange, apple, something like that. And he, want, he always wants what I have. And so I poured him like a little half a cup. And he sat there and he picked up the cup, took a drink, and he put it down, licked his lips, you know, and he said, that is strong drink, Dad. <laughs> now, he doesn't know anything about strong drink in the Bible. But I laughed to myself and I thought, aha! Strong drink. It was good. It wasn't water. Wasn't water. It was, it was strong, sugary, sweet. It was a blessing to enjoy, not to for Will and I to become drunk. Uh, I'm moving along. I got to keep going. So wine was primarily made out of grapes, but it was other fruits as well. And it just made sense that Mary, as we read here, she comes to Jesus. It would make sense that Mary would communicate the catastrophe to Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus, in her 30 years of living with him, and it seems to me that Joseph, her husband, was dead by this point, right, might very well have been dead by this point, Jesus never would have had a bad idea. Mom, I can remember a time when I was a teenager where I did something, and it was good, and uh, 
And I remember you and Dad being really impressed by what I did. But I can only remember one of those. Now, I'm sure there were others. I'm sure there were others. But for, for Mary to come to her son, it would have made perfect sense. He had never had a bad idea in his life. Can you, remember, can you imagine this? Having Jesus as your son? Now, he had never had a wrong solution in his entire life. He had never led her one step in a wrong direction. He had, never per, he, he had the perfect solution for every dilemma. And so Jesus would have been the most wise, the most intelligent, and the most resourceful person that had ever lived or ever will live on the face of the earth. He would know the way to solve every problem. And not only that, he cared about people. He was compassionate. He was kind. He was loving. He could see the issues. Who else would Mary go to? It makes complete sense why Mary would come to Jesus. And I can't help but asking, who do you go to when you're facing a catastrophe? This morning in Sunday school, in our home builders class, which is for people who have children in their homes. It's not the young marrieds class. You don't have to be married to attend the class. It's for people with children in their homes. And he's teaching through Psalm 119. And today, in verse 28, he read this verse. My soul melteth for heaviness. Have you ever felt like that? Ever felt like your soul is just melting away because the cares of this world are just so, so much? He read, My soul melteth for heaviness, and then he prays to the Lord, Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Who do you turn to when you're facing a predicament, a catastrophic predicament? My heart has been moved this morning as I watched several people enter this building after the events of this week, and not just this week, but last week. I didn't see it on Facebook, but you had a flood, didn't you? Frozen pipe, which burst and flooded. You're here. Another friend of mine called me this week, a member of the church, and he said, some things are happening with my job. And basically... From our conversation, some things were not in his control. They came to him and told him, this is the way it's going to be. These are your choices. Neither one of them are really that good. And you're here, seeking the word of God. Friday night, Dr. Jeff Norell was diagnosed with a form of leukemia. Mrs. Norell, you're here. Mary Margaret White been a couple weeks, but her brother passed away and praying for his soul to be saved. We don't know if he was or not. You're here. There's a young mom in the room who's going through a court battle for her two daughters that she loves so much. She's here. Karen's mom fell this Wednesday evening, I believe. Was hospitalized in ICU, broke bone. She's out of ICU now, but dealing with all of this, she's here. This morning, Mrs. Gebhardt walked in, and Mr. Gebhardt is going through that stage of life. And it's a hard stage, and his body is failing him, and Mrs. Gebhardt's heart is heavy. So this family faced a catastrophic predicament. Mary comes to her her son, and she says, this is the problem. Who do you go to 
Who do you go to? I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, I interrupted Josh to say, and I encourage us all with this, the moments in our lives when we least feel like, when we're overwhelmed with heaviness and we least feel like putting ourselves under the word of God are the times in our lives when we must put ourselves under the word of God. Because it's the word of God that strengthens us and feeds us and encourages us and helps us through this life. And those of you who I just named who are here, and those are most of those calls came to me this week, it's beyond me to help you. But the word of God and the spirit of God and Christ within you, the Lord Jesus Christ, can help you. Look at verses 4 and 5. There's a distancing. There's a distancing. And this is unique. Jesus saith unto her, so she's come to him and said, hey, we're, they're out of wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, which would be uh, kind of like the southern ma'am. Or, dear lady. And again, I've never called my mom either one of those. Although I have said, yes, ma'am. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And he's speaking of a real crisis. This isn't the real crisis. Verse 5, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, it wasn't harsh for Jesus to call his mother woman, okay? And I don't want you to interpret Jesus. This is not a proof text for how sons can dishonor their mothers. It wasn't dishonoring or harsh for him to call his mother woman, but it was not intimate, okay? It wasn't mom or mother. It certainly didn't have that feel. It's the same word Jesus used when he was hanging on the cross when he spoke to his mother. Do you remember that? In John chapter 19, he spoke hanging on the cross, spoke to his mother. He said, woman, behold thy son. And he was referring to John. And John was going to take care of his mom. It's, it's kind of like ma'am. It's kind of like dear lady. Jesus was being courteous, but Jesus was also teaching his mother. Remember, Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God. He was God. Now, you have to, you have to keep this... You have to keep that in the forefront of your mind. You're not going to be able to understand this. Jesus calls her woman. Why? Because he was telling his mom that the relationship they'd had up until this particular time was changing. In other words, she was no longer the authority in his life. And she was no longer to act as the authority in his life. She was no longer in a position to tell him what to do, to, make suggest, to even make suggestions to him. This would be a big change because I can imagine that everything she had ever asked of him, he gave out of his love and he responded and he cared for her. But she could no longer demand anything from him. And I'll go one step further. She, she played no role in his ministry. Now don't be offended by that. Roman Catholicism teaches that to get to God, you have to pray through Mary. And they base that doctrine or that teaching on this passage, which is so interesting. Why? Why do they do that? Because she goes to him and he does a miracle for her. But they seem to forget about this particular verse, these verses that we're looking at now, verses four and five, where he calls her woman and basically says, what does this issue have to do with me? And, and again, I, I point out to you, she played no role in his ministry you might remember when Jesus was 12 years old, he was in the temple talking to the officials, and he asked his mother in Luke chapter 2, 
He said, wist ye not, or don't you understand that I must be about my father's business? I think he said that with a great deal of respect and honor to his mother. But he was reminding her, don't you understand that I'm, going, I'm, I'm about my father's business? And who was he talking about? Was he talking about his stepfather, Joseph? No. Who was he talking about? He was talking about God, his father. And he says to his mother, don't you, don't you remember that I'm to be about my father's business? And it was on this day, in, here in Cana, his father's business started officially. And his mother's business ended And from here on, he was saying, I don't do your business, Mom. I do my father's business. And I can't help but remember that throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus never received a suggestion from anybody. Now, that's not an example you and I should follow. Proverbs tells us that in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. You and I ought to seek counsel and wisdom. But did Jesus have any need to seek counsel? counsel or opinion suggestions from mere mortal people. Did he? No. Why? Because he was God. As John has already talked to us about in chapter 1, he, in the beginning, was the Word. He's eternal. And the Word was with, was, was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. He, Jesus had all wisdom. He knew how everything in the universe, everything in our human bodies, everything works. Why? because he created it all. So he had no need for suggestions. In fact, when people gave him suggestions, he normally rebuked them. In fact, in Peter's case, he rebuked him severely. Remember what he said? Get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) Okay. Probably not a good idea to give suggestions to him. To hear his rebuke is milder to his mother. He says, what have I to do with thee? Uh, In other words, what does that have to do with me, Mom? What does this have to do with me? And this is so critically important. He is finished with his mother's business, and he's now doing his father's business. He says from here on, as we'll see in John 4, that Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That's why I'm here. Look with me to Matthew chapter 12 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 12. Because I I want you to understand this a little more clearly. It is very important. Jesus has been living a life in quite a bit of obscurity, working I believe, as a stonemason, his hands are gnarled, he's worked. People know of him, he's going to be, he's going to have, he's a man of character and integrity to the highest level, okay? He has a wonderful reputation, but people don't know him as God. They don't know him as God. In fact, his brethren didn't know him as God, even while he was living. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46. Verse 46. It says, While he yet talked to the people, behold his mother, so he's teaching, he's preaching, behold his mother and his brethren, his brothers, stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Jesus, Behold thy mother and thy brethren, stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him, that told him, he asked them a question, he says, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus, he wasn't disowning his earthly family, but he was saying there is a greater priority and it is my spiritual family. 
He's giving us greater clarity. Jesus' true spiritual family are those who are obedient to God's will. Those who are obedient and submissive to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who are closest to him. Obedience to Christ is that which demonstrates our love for him. And ironically, most of Jesus' brothers didn't know him as God. And in this particular passage, Jesus knew they did not recognize him as God. They did not believe upon him as God. And Jesus knew that they knew it too. They knew it. They didn't believe that Jesus was God. Look back to John 2 as we finish this morning. Look at verse 6, because there's a miracle of water into wine. And this is a miracle. Look at verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Again, anywhere from 10 to 25 gallons. Most people think it's about 20 gallons each. And there were six of them, so possibly as much as 120 gallons. Some even think 150 gallons. Any way you cut it, it was a lot of, a lot of wine. Verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And notice they did not, they were not full to, filled to the brim with anything. They were, they were water pots. They were used for washing or cleansing. They would be used, as the Bible tells us in other places, they, were, they would be used to cleanse uh, cups or uh, different utensils. Um, uh, even furniture at times. They would be used by the Jews to cleanse their hands before and after a meal. They didn't use them to drink out of. This is important. And by the way, Jesus is going to take these water pots that are used for cleansing. And how many of you would like to drink out of a water pot? 20 gallons of water that people have been dipping their hands into or at least lifting the water out of to cleanse their hands before they go into the meal. Jesus, as God, is going to take that which has been, is, is used for cleansing and really, we might say, is defiled. You would never drink out of it. He's going to take something like that and he's going to make out of it something that is beautiful, that brings great joy and great honor, and, and is, a, is a symbol of God's blessing upon his people. And I can't help but thinking about you and me. And only the Lord Jesus Christ can do this. Let's, let's read on. He, they filled the, them up to the brim with water, so they're all full now, verse 8. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water... That was made wine and knew not whence it was. He didn't know it came from a water pot. He didn't know that Jesus had done a miracle. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. The bridegroom was never so happy. Verse 10 And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. So it was not uncommon you'd, you'd set out your best. And we understand this, don't you? When you have guests over, what do you do? Do you say, go to the refrigerator and find something to eat? No, you say, here's what I've prepared for you. And if they're still hungry, you might go to the refrigerator and say, would you like a cheese stick? Now, I've got some cheese sticks. I've got some clementines. I mean, we've never gotten quite that desperate, you know. But you might go and get something left over. But 
when you have guests, you give them the best. This is the same thing. You give them the best, and you hope they fill up on the best and never get to that which has been sitting out a little longer and is a little, whew, you know, this is not the best. No, and, and he says here, you've, you've kept the best until last. So the wine, I want to tell you this, and we'll, we'll close. The wine that Jesus created on this occasion was sweet, refreshing, unfermented grape juice. In fact, there are portions of Scripture in the, in the Old Testament where the Bible records how men would take a cluster of grapes and they would squeeze, and the Bible calls it wine, into the glass. Was it fermented? No. It's called wine. I remember dating, when we were dating, dear, we were sitting at your parents' table and your father said, please pass the wine. And I looked around, like, where did I miss something? He wanted the grape juice. Jesus did a miracle, and he turned water into, I believe, that which was exceedingly the best wine, non-alcoholic, grape juice that has ever been tasted on the face of the earth. And, and I'll say this, shame on us. I'll use us in general with Christianity today. Shame on us for, for saying that the Lord produced between 100 and 150 or 160 gallons of fermented Alcoholic wine. It's wrong. It goes against the character of God. It flies in the face of who God is. God is holy. To say such a thing that Jesus would make hundreds of or hundred gallons of alcoholic wine for a wedding party and for the guests of that party is to say I, I think is to, to, to start an enormous moral problem. How could the sinless Son of God intox, uh, provide intoxicating wine for the use of those who are gathered together for this holy occasion, as the Old Testament calls it? Would Jesus, the Lamb of God, sinless, spotless, pure, would he encourage drunkenness? Would he encourage excess when in Ephesians it says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Would he encourage excess? Would he encourage debauchery that often comes from when, when a person becomes drunk? Habakkuk 2 and verse 15 says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. The, the very spirit of Christ in the word of God describes alcohol, alcoholic wine, as a mocker. This is the spirit of Christ that says this. Would Christ make alcoholic drink when his own spirit says wine is a mocker? He describes it as biting like a serpent. That's enjoyable. Like stinging like an adder. As the poison of dragons, the cruel venom of asps. And in the book of Revelation, Christ's own spirit compares alcoholic wine to the fierce, destructive wrath of Almighty God. There is nothing in my mind that says Jesus made or might have made alcoholic drink for these people. No way. 
What he created that day was the freshest, sweetest, most refreshing juice of the vine that they had ever tasted. And I want to stop, and we'll finish with this. I want to, I want to end with this. There's something really beautiful, I think, about this, because for 30 years, Jesus in Nazareth, in this little town of just a few hundred people, 30 years of obscurity in life, working with his hands, and he's now beginning his public ministry. And this is, in John 2, this is the bridge from his private life to his public ministry. And this miracle, this sign, Samion, sign, this, it's translated miracle in our Bibles wonderfully so, but it means sign, this miracle of Jesus Christ, this was a transition now, from his private life to his public ministry, and he does this in front of his family and friends. These are the people who know him. These are the people who would have recognized him. They would have called him by his name. Good to see you. How are you doing? Do you have any jobs going? What's, what's next on your agenda? How's that project coming? Are you, you're finished, you finished that up. They would have known him. And he does this miracle in front of them. He didn't do this in Judea, to the south in Israel. He did this in Galilee for those that he loved. They were the first ones to recognize and see the demonstration that Jesus was more than just a man. He was God. He was the creator. And it was kind of a family and friends miracle. And what makes it even more strange to me is that when Jesus comes back to Nazareth a few months later, in Luke chapter 4, and we'll not take time to turn there, but in Luke chapter 4, He goes back to the synagogue where he would have grown up as a boy. And he goes in and he reads from Isaiah and he preaches a message and he tells them that he is the Messiah. And the people who knew him, who had watched him grow up, rejected his message and they moved on him to kill him because they said he was a heretic. And I say that to say this, there are three ways I think that you and I can respond to Jesus as God. One, we can receive him. And that's what happens in verse 11 of of this passage. This beginning of signs, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Their faith grew. Jesus is God. And those of you... And every one of us in this room, we can either, our faith in him can grow, he is God, or our faith can be shaken as we look at the storms of this life and the predicaments of this life. Their faith grew. And so we can respond to Jesus in this passage that he is God. Or we can respond in unbelief. And, and I'll not take the time to turn there, but in, in, in chapter uh, 12 and verse 37, many of the religious people responded in unbelief. They heard him speak. They saw his miracles and they chose not to believe. And if you choose not to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you are choosing to put your confidence completely in yourself. Are we honest with ourselves about who we really are? Do you really want to trust your eternity? into what you can do or what you have done in this life. I do not want to trust my future on on me, but I will trust this man, the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the ends of the earth, eternal forever God, Jesus Christ. I will trust him. I want us to close with a hymn. 